fun. Welcome back to Conversations of the Leaky Cauldron, Episode 8, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Chapters 31 through 37. And back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller from afar and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, you two, and welcome back, Sarah, from the middle of the country. Yeah, hey, hey y'all. And so let's just jump right in today. And we had a pretty healthy chunk of reading. We had um, uh, th- chapter 31, the third task, chapter 32, flesh, blood, and bone, 33, the Death Eaters, 34, Priori and Cantatum, 35, the Radicerum, a lot of Latin here, 36, the Pardon of the Ways, 37, the Beginning. Uh, I suppose that contrasts with episode. Um, or excuse me, I, I thought maybe um, chapter one, but no. So where did you all want to start today? Where uh, Quite a bit has been revealed to us in these last moments, and some very unexpected things have happened and, and have we learned. Um, Voldemort has come back. Mad-Eye Moody was not the man we thought he was. Um, perhaps Barty Crouch was not the man we thought he was. Perhaps Ludo Bagman was not the man we thought he was, though I think we learned that last time. And I suppose one of the themes we've been talking about is layers and how, as we go through these books, we develop a more, uh, we, or we develop a more developed perspective on the wizarding world. It becomes more human, more like the primary world, as Sarah and Tolkien would say. And um, that we're seeing the dark underbelly of the books. And I'm not going to spoil it, but getting into that fifth book, I think we're really going to see that hypothesis borne out. But what did y'all think about um, these concluding chapters and, in relation to that theme? And what is it that we learned that sort of expanded our notion of what the wizarding world is like and how it's more than just people with funny green hats and uh, ridiculous names? I, I might have missed it, but um, did you mention that the final chapter is called The Beginning? I, I'm not sure if I did or didn't. But. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that in itself is kind of surprising um, in a couple of ways uh, because, you know, you're literally at the end of this very long book, this book considerably longer than any of the others so far, and it's saying you're just at the beginning. So you're like, oh my gosh, there's there's three more books, you know, it's like, this is rad. Um, but it's also, <laughs> I, think, I think it's uh, it's making the... Uh, the connection for me to uh, to Genesis, you know, but I see that everywhere. So I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm really seeing that or I just, you know, um, I want to see that. But, you know, it sounds a lot like in the beginning. And and it sounds like, you know, she is making uh, a, like a, a bid for a, a slightly uh, higher level kind of uh, work of art here uh, than, than we might have expected when we started, you know, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Although that's pretty impressive sounding in the British title too. Well, you know, that's interesting too, just to consider what the beginning is, because in the next, the next book, we'll see the order of the Phoenix. And again, that Phoenix imagery, which is both beginning and ending imagery. Phoenix is born from its own ashes. Life comes from its own death in a Dionysian or Christ-like way. But um, it's literally Lord Voldemort coming back. That's the beginning, right? He is now embodied in a real true way. None the way where he had to share a body with Quirrell. And so it's like it's the beginning of the real work against the real enemy. It's like it's the Fellowship of the Ring, not the Hobbit anymore, or something like that. What do you think, Sarah? Oh, yeah, we are not in Hobbit territory anymore, fellas. Um, and we have, like, left the Shire, for sure. Um, yeah. I, I do... I like the idea of the of the biblical illusion, though. To me, this book, I, I remember a few a few uh, podcasts ago, we were talking about how three has sort of morphed into four. You know, the third book um, sort of represented this summit of kind of what the the first three were, and the fourth seemed to take a market departure. And there were four surprising. Um, tournament champions, and we of course learn why in our reading for today. But um, you know, like this, the 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 three things kind of being pushed into the fourth, uh, like as though the the fourth dimension of time is sort of how I think about it. Like these three things are now um, in motion or incarnate. I think was the thing that was speaking to me around the Christmas time. 
Um, so I, I kind of see this sort of as like the beginning of the great battle, right? Like the beginning of the, uh, like if the first three that came were all set up, this is the beginning of, 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 yeah, evil incarnate, but also I would say, um, good, like, like, like matured good incarnate. I mean, I think there's a, a moment where Dumbledore is explaining to Harry, um, uh, the Priorian cantatum, and, and he says, like, there's, that Harry reached a level of magic that a very good adult wizard would not have not necessarily have been able to reach. Like something has been altered and they're at the beginning of kind of this next kind of more grave level. And maybe to answer your original question, Alex, like that's, that's what makes it more real um, or more primary like um, that the stakes are higher. This isn't just, wearing costumes and flicking around wands this is this is uh life life and death um so and i think that's great okay. would you so it sounds like you're saying things are taking shape so we can actually sort of notice the pattern of the narrative because of this time element that we now have that's extended this static three into this dynamic four and just what i like so much about that is the fourth sphere of Dante's heaven, the sun, is the first unobscured by the conical shadow coming off the earth. It is the first sphere in which mm -hmm. you see the actual shape that the souls are joined in, interlocking circles surrounded by a third, because of course it's the sphere of arithmetic or adding and sharing one's perspective, as we do here as fellow illuminators. And so that's so fascinating that that moment literally happens in the Paradiso too, when you can see the narrative taking shape finally, when you have a yeah. clear perspective on what's happening. And so, so instead of simply judging this work by novelty now, it's as if we're now judging it by its own merits, by what it is. Um, I mean, what, what do you think about that, Wes? What do you think about that, Sarah? Do you agree with that? I'm not sure. Hey, I was sorry. I was looking up one thing because I agree that we're no longer in Hobbit territory, but I, I do have to point out that the um, the riddle posed by this particular Sphinx is a very Hobbit-like riddle, I thought. Um, so just to like go to the other bookend uh, illusion, you know, sort of for this, this portion of the reading, um, that Sphinx, you know, she's a, a magnificent uh, beast from from ancient myth and literature. Um, but she's also like a very British sphinx. She asks a riddle, which uh, it, it depends upon the English language. It depends upon the English pronunciation of er when you're thinking hard, right, to figure it out. And that's a lot like uh, the final riddle between uh, Bilbo Baggins and Gollum, where uh, Bilbo says he needs more time, he needs more time. And that's the answer to the riddle, right? It's, it's a lot like that, I thought. And so I I, I see what you're saying. Like this is a, a more serious kind of mode that we're in, but but in the same, you know, by the same token, it, it it's not that sharp of a of a break, maybe. Um, and and I know that there's a, a moment kind of like that in the fellowship where where opening the door requires saying friend, and they have a good laugh about it, and then you know Frodo gets attacked by the Watcher in the water. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I think there's there's some interesting like play of levels here like it's not like we were just suddenly plunged into gloom there, there's still a lot of like joyful things and we realized that you know Hagrid and Dumbledore seemed like they really expected this to go this way all the time like it was only a matter of time until mm -hmm. this kind of came to the surface so you know and it, it's it's uplifting too at the end you know it's like well um something something impressive is about to happen well, I think the claim is more that it's taking shape and that we can see it clearer now than it's simply becoming darker, even though that is a theme that we've noted. Because, um, I mean, well, just to take a motif we've seen not only in this book, but in games in general, uh, the labyrinth precedes the reality situation where things finally get real. So there is a break. That port key, that trophy, takes one into a totally different moment. From the simulation in which there are rules and safety, out into the quote-unquote real world or unknown territory where all of a sudden somebody dies and then you know there's the wake of death that will follow him through the next the next book so I mean I agree that there are joyful moments too certainly
but but I think I think what's happening is that we're just getting a deepening understanding of the fullness or the range of experience possible in this world. Yeah, and I I agree. Actually, I agree with with what you just said, Alex. I think the labyrinth is a perfect um, example. And, and Wes, you're totally right. I, I actually kind of forgot about this Sphinx's riddle in the labyrinth, and I was racking my brain to be like, did they refer to the Oedipus riddle? And I totally missed that. But anyway, the um, it, you're right that there's like that that sort of like a hat tip of sorts. I think. I mean, from Rowling to uh, you know a, a British classic. What I meant by um, things sort of like we're not in the you know Hobbit territory anymore. It's more like what I know is to come is so much like the stakes seem so much higher and, and like the writing seems to be like at a more complex level or the world making I guess. But uh, I can't even really say that about Tolkien. But I, I think I think I wanna I wanna just point like just point out one one moment where um, it does seem like the game has fundamentally shifted when um, when Harry goes into the into the graveyard and he realizes what is happening. Voldemort has been uh, resurrected. He's been wounded. Cedric is dead, and you know he's being forced to duel, which is a game, right? Um, and he doesn't remember anything from his dueling club except how to disarm. And all of the things that he learned to help him in the labyrinth, um, they sort of fall out of his head. And he says there's nothing um, that he had learned that could help him in this moment. He had learned, he had never learned anything that could quite block against this. He was quite unprotected, I think is the quote I wrote down. And then, you know, after resisting these imperial curses, which I have to, I think at some point we have to talk about as well, um, he says that he knew one thing beyond fear and reason that if he was going to die, he was going to die upright, trying even if it meant um, death. You know that like um, that just seems like a whole different version of a of a game um, because the stakes aren't winning or losing, um, you know, glory or shame. It like things things move from a, a labyrinth game to another kind of game that was way different um, and that he oddly felt unprepared yet totally was prepared for. Um, That's, a, I think, a really interesting way of looking at what Voldemort is up to here by constructing this kind of elaborate game. You know, if, if yeah. he wanted to, to capture Harry, he could have made pretty much anything a port key, you know, that Harry was going to touch and get him to touch it and he'd be through, you know, he would have had Harry that way. But he, he really goes to a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble to make sure that Harry wins the tournament so that in the moment of him winning, you know, at his moment of triumph, as they point out about Cedric, like when he dies, he's at like on the top, you know, he's, he's, he's won, he's won the tournament against all odds and all expectations. Right. And so, that I think is exactly how Voldemort felt in the moment when he lost his powers, you know, 13 years prior. And so he wants like Harry to just like go through that moment in reverse is, is kind of how it feels there. And it's, it's so the envy and the, the anger that he must feel Voldemort is like so profound. And um, Rowling does an impressive job of kind of like making us feel that kind of, you know, sinking feeling like, oh, like that's this, this is this kind of book is what we're reading now. Like, so, you know, I thought I was on top of the world reading a fantasy and now I'm like deep in, uh, in the, in the circles. It's, it's rough. And then, okay. But then you get the kind of this, the song of the Phoenix, the, the Priori and Cantatum. And, and it, it's sort of, I think the turning point is where he's like, no, I'm not going to bow. Like, I'm not going to let this be how Voldemort wants it to be. And, and you sort of, as the reader, you're like, yeah, okay. There's still hope. Okay. I'm really curious why that question that you articulated um, just there, like, um, can we maybe explore why do we think Voldemort um, trapped Harry in this way? I think it's it's fairly clear why they they went to the place that they went, but I'm I'm curious why this way, and also what do you think? 
gives Harry the ability to resist. I mean, I think from the story from Barty Crouch, it's apparently possible to resist the Imperio curse, but it seems like for him, it took a really long time. And that curse wasn't placed on him by the world's most powerful dark wizard. It was placed on him by his father. So I'm, I'm, it seems like Harry was able to resist relatively quickly um, uh, in, a, in a time of crisis. Um, I resist um, uh, the imperial curse from someone who for damn sure knew how to use it. So I, I'm curious about both of those things. I wondered what you guys thought. I have a few thoughts on that. Uh, I, I, at the most general level, wonder whether Voldemort and Harry both experience a moment of ultimate triumph, which is, of course, followed by a moment of sort of ultimate defeat, because you find yourself outside of the sort of dominance hierarchy or value structure in which you were climbing when you were fighting for it, right? So like you win the Olympic gold medal and then the next day you're not a swimmer anymore or you graduate from college and then the next day, you know, you got to go take your minimum wage job at um, wherever. Um, and rather than being treated like a, a prince or a princess, you're now sort of a slave. You have that tremendous fall from grace after being a winner for that small amount of time. Um, to that point about Voldemort, uh, this makes me more and more, because of the game he constructs, he more and more strikes me as sort of that archetypal figure of the hostile brother to Harry. Um, they, of course, share the same uh, sort of wand or the same, uh, what is it, phoenix feather with, within it, which creates the priori incantatum situation. Uh, they're very like Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes to me um, as well. Mm. They're sort of this arch villain that constructs uh, games that the the hero or the protagonist must be smart enough or skilled enough to get through, except for in this case, Harry needs a lot of help, which is <laughs> sort of funny. But I do like the sadistic, malevolent idea that Voldemort goes to all this trouble precisely to put Harry through as much pain as he has been through in this moment as well. Um, and I, I, I like the idea that... Um, what makes Voldemort say evil rather than um, good is precisely in the game that he creates and the parameters that surround it, that he is willing to kill. Um, though, of course, we know that the Aurors will kill as well. Um, they will meet fire with fire in the Whispering World. That's something we find out. But that um, it seems like the structure of his game or the outcomes or intentions behind it are, are what differentiate him as malevolent from someone who's good, as if there's a very different uh, as if uh, a very different experience of playing is expected in the game. He wants, mm. he wants fear and submission and humiliation to be parts of his game, whereas if you look at the Triwizard Tournament, it seems like courage and perseverance, and even though there's tremendous danger and threat of death, the, the desire of the designer seems to bring out the best rather than the worst in man. Maybe, maybe that is one way of observing what evil is. I'm not sure. What do you, what do you two think? I know I was sort of circumlocuting. Well, I, I mean, well, I think, well the, the question oh, about the, the, the why Harry can resist the Imperio curse, I just had a quick thought about that, which is that, you know, Voldemort can make him physically bow right before that. So it's it's not that he's more powerful than Voldemort in a kind of like direct head-to-head -head way, but that I think it's the particular thing that Voldemort is trying to get him to do that Harry is capable of resisting. And that's like saying a word, right? I think that that's very important here, um, that there there's something different about, you know, this, this articulate speech. Um, and and we've seen that before. Like that that seems very very significant. Um, the relationship between spells that involve speaking versus spells that are are sort of embodied and like where the borderline is there. I, I think that we get that sort of drawn out a bit with the priori and cantatum thing, where it's like the spells themselves construct a, a still another game within which um, neither of them really know what's going on, and they're they're both kind of at a loss. Um, and the spells themselves start to talk to them, which is wild. 
Yeah, I sort of, I like the the parallel between Moriarty and, and Holmes. I think, I also think of Edgar and Edmund in King Lear where, um, but I, I think that maybe that's where the great weakness is in, in Voldemort ultimately is that he, and we see this in the, in the spell that he himself writes to regenerate himself, which I think is also interesting that he is the author of his own like re-embodiment um, uh, is that he needs Harry in a way that Harry doesn't need Voldemort. Right. And I, I, um, I, I'm always reminded the more that Voldemort is like this is a character who has a body and a voice and speaks and acts in the stories. I'm always reminded more and more. And I, I please correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys understand it, I'm reminded of like, um, some of the uh, resentment that I learned about when reading like some of Nietzsche's beyond good and evil or the genealogy of morality, like the need for the, like the need to define yourself against something as opposed to define yourself positively as something, right? He, he is, def you know, like he, he needs, he needs Harry to regenerate. And like, that's a great, and I'm sure he understands it as a great weakness as well. And I wonder if, um, if like an, an inability to really accept that or articulate it is, is something is somehow a part of this as well. I, um, I'm interested too in like the, the, um, the language that he uses when he tells Harry to bow, he says, you have to bow to death, which is so interesting because it's, that's the one thing that he has attempted to make himself impervious to, right. That like, that's the one thing, the one element of his former humanity that he believes, at least for now, he's not, he's like, will never happen to him because he's above it. Right. But I think, I think that's a, a pretty clear, a pretty clear signal that it's the thing that he most fears. And so that, that has become the thing that he defines himself over and against. And it seems really um, like, it, it just seems like a, a source of weakness that in the moment seems like strength, but um, because it, it separates him from people. Um, but I don't know. I find, I find that interesting. Um, yeah. I certainly agree that he, he is like Nietzsche's last man or the one who, who engages in or feels resentment and that his, his goal is lower than Harry's and thus his standard. Whereas Harry wishes to expurgate evil from the world, Voldemort wishes to humiliate the boy who took everything from him. And mm -hmm. so we're, we're in this moment watching this dark lord uh, kill a kid and then essentially torture this other kid and then fail to do so in a way that's more humiliating to him than it is to us or to Harry. Because who should he be fighting? This fourth-year wizard who's been outmatched by other seventh-year wizards who are by no means Lord Voldemort, this entire tournament we find out, who needed a ton of help from fake Moody, actual Barty Crouch. And and this he's denigrating himself by reducing himself to uh, torturing a child, essentially. Uh, I mean, if he were a true Dark Lord, like a Sauron-like figure, he would be fighting Dumbledore. Let's be frank. Like Dumbledore is oh, yeah. a figure of divine light, God the Father in this, and he should at least have the dignity to lose to him. But I think it's telling that he doesn't. Like you said, there's that phrase about the Romans in relation to the Greeks and conquering they were conquered. And it seems that Voldemort and so trying to escape death has had his life dominated by it and has invited death so closely into his life. He's so afraid of it like a snake, he actually keeps a snake which kills next to him, and in fact, kills with the killing curse at all times. Death is always surrounding him. He has in no way conquered it, I would say. Well, absolutely. And like, he seems to sort of know that he's made some pretty big, big errors here. Um, like, you know, drinking the unicorn blood and overlooking the, uh, the magic that saved Harry's life. And and now he makes, you know, I think I agree, like by needing Harry's blood to revive himself in bodily form here, 
uh, Dumbledore like kind of has this look of of triumph, like just for fleeting, mm -hmm. like that. That's a pretty, I think, a pretty a good good glimpse into like, yeah, there there is like ultimately no chance that Voldemort is going to actually win, um, and that it's it's interesting in so far as he keeps you know trying and keeps um yeah in in every way that he goes head to head against harry he just sort of um diminishes his, his own like fearful uh awe-inspiring status um his most devoted servant is like completely insane and deranged right uh at, at, at least fudge is, is right about that much um and and so there's there is something you know something to that that uh again it it does seem like you could have a story where you directly put pit Voldemort up against Dumbledore and Dumbledore would win and it wouldn't be that much of a story so so there has to be all this other there's got to be the seven locks on the on the luggage right there's got to be the very <laughs> only at the very end of the fourth book you don't get to just like hear the whole story right up front and just like see okay well good versus evil good wins like that's that's not that interesting of a story but um but we can make it a really interesting story if we do a little more with it and i think it's precisely the smallness of voldemort that brings out the greatness of the good of those who fight against him and even those who were at once at his side the things he does are so petty and, and even though he puts on this veneer of culture, which we'll see later in the fifth and sixth books, and, and here he puts on this, this uh, foppish, not foppish, but um, uh, disingenuous display of ritual courtesy during the wand, mm -hmm. uh, during the, the battle scene, right? He doesn't actually believe in what he's doing. He's not doing it to respect conventions. He's doing it to, he, he's observing the forms in order to, the form in order to humiliate appropriately. Again, he, he's denigrating the institution, but in so, and, and his opponent, but in so doing, he denigrates himself. And he's, he's resentfully unmasking his own death eaters and part of the key to his own power was the fact that he kept them secret from each other he's sloppy he's uh he's angry he's emotional he 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 just does he rather than being this larger than life he who must not be named he he's very much reduced to the figure of and i know this is from the movies the sort of ralph fines like very much the mm -hmm. human here i would say and that seems to be exactly what he's trying not to be. He wants to be a god. And yet he comes out as just a very, very petty human. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting that, you know, how much power he wields over people. We've been talking about it. How, how much power the, the specter of Voldemort as he who must not be named, how much um, like influence that has over people's way of life, it, over their language. To your point earlier, Wes, about its power and it, the way that it it reflects who we are, and like the way that it kind of is a is set above um, in terms of one of the one of the things that we have the capacity to control than just our our physical actions. But um, like he he was everywhere even when he was disembodied and it's like being, I'm, I was, I think this time around, as I, as I listened and read, I was just struck by how, how like kind of boring of a villain I found him. Like I did not find him. I thought he was scarier when you didn't know what he looked like or when you didn't know where he was or what he was up to. And um, I, I guess it sort of surprises me that that somebody of his power and capacity um, wouldn't know that a and and, and b wouldn't um, it makes me wonder when the um, first rise to power when like the initial attempts at like some dark order were in the works um, it must have been something else too that was. Per, like powerful and pervasive because at that time he had a body um, and, um, and it was his, you know, his original body. So what, what was it in combination with him, his, his, you know, incarnate status that, 
made him so formidable a foe because in this moment he seems like you said petty um vindictive um uh uh weak um this this grand plan is is fooled by a summoning charm right like um yeah so i'm 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 curious what you all thought about that or if we want to talk about what we thought about um you know fake Mad-Eye Moody or something like that. We can also move on. Well, two or three things about that are, I wonder how many villains or horror movie monsters survived that test of going from the dark abysses of your imagination with small clues of their existence in the beginning of a text to what they actually physically manifest mm-hmm. for, as in yeah. front of you. Fair. Like, it, it was much scarier to me until I, before I saw it as a spider in the 80s movie. Um, and, but, but I just think that's very interesting, but I totally agree about Voldemort becoming really small, smaller than life rather than larger than life. And that his initial rise to power must've been absolutely terrifying, but something about him as sort of a figure of the archetypal enemy or devil is that Harry says, I won't to him after he tries to get him to articulate no, as Wes was saying. And part of what I think that means is that the power of the devil is to convince you not to use your will power or to convince you that you don't mm. have a choice and that that is precisely what Harry rejects, even though he gets a soporific drug-like Lotus eater, Nepenthe-like uh, feeling from it. Apparently it's the easiest thing in the world to give up your willpower. Well, of course it comes from your highest possible faculty, your intelligence, according to Dante and Aquinas. And, and that does seem to be, correct uh, to say no to evil is extraordinarily hard much much harder than just giving into it like most of these other um characters and so it seems like the failing of the death eaters is that they give into their fear of death and that makes them give up their freedom of will to voldemort and that mm. precisely because harry does not give into his fear of death that he stands up right that he uh, he keeps his willpower, his freedom of will. And that, I think, is ultimately what wins that wand battle for him, that he is rejecting Voldemort, whereas Voldemort is attempting to subjugate him. And uh, the force of rejecting someone else's uh, attempt to subjugate you, I think, is a stronger motivating force. Um, uh, yeah. And, yeah, that's what I have to say for now, even though I know I didn't address every one of your points. Uh, no, I no, th- I, I think. Uh, I, I was I was thinking that same that same passage, right? The priori and cantatum when they're in the golden dome together, and their wands are vibrating, and the the golden thread is connecting them. Uh, that that does seem like the moment when you see the willpower confront, you know, directly head to head, and and Harry is victorious there, and and so yeah, I think in that moment. There, there does seem to be something else along with Harry's will, though, right? This, this voice that's like a friend speaking in his ear and the music that's like the, fe- uh, the Phoenix song, right? So that there is this kind of something else. Um, there's something that his will, when it's in the proper kind of uh, channel, like puts him in touch with. Um, it, it transcends his, his own sort of, experience or understanding or anything, but it's his will. Yeah, I agree that that does seem to be sort of like the gateway to, um, to open him up to this other thing, which, which proves to, uh, yeah, really just overcome, um, Voldemort. And it, you know, it has to do with, it has to do with the shadows of those that Voldemort has, has killed, you know? So it's like his, his strength is his weakness in this case. And Harry's weakness is his strength. What do you Hmm. think that golden chain is? And just to make a connection to the golden ladder of Saturn in the sphere in Paradiso, as well as, you know, the, the golden ladder that Jacob sees, um, um, and this golden thread that Zeus says he could drop from the top of heaven and pull up the earth and all the gods along with it, if only he willed. Uh, what, I, I guess, do you, what do you think this golden thread is and it seems like you were you were dancing around, not dancing around. I guess circumlocuting around, saying what it is you see. What do you think this something is that that he taps into 
and what and do you see a connection between this moment and the moment in the second book when Fox shows up after the post hoc explanation by Dumbledore that somebody showing extraordinary loyalty to him will receive the appropriate sort of weapon or tool in that moment to vanquish evil by means of good. It does, it does look a lot like that moment. And yeah, the, the Phoenix, you know, is this very interesting symbol there, um, which seems to have a lot of kind of facets to it. In this case, it's song. And then later, you know, it's tears. So again, we'll heal, heal Harry's wound. But it seems like his wound doesn't really bother him all of a sudden after this either. So it's, it's as good as it's healed at that moment. Um, and, and as I think as, as far as the, um, the golden thread that connects them, I mean, I think that that's simply the, uh, the underlying like unity, um, which is, I, I mean, I think in this conception is good, right? The underlying reality, the ground of reality is, is basically good. Uh, it seems to be the message here. And so the, the evil that passes over it is ultimately, you know, going to be uh, driven back. It will always find sort of new shapes and new um, interesting stories to tell, right? And sort of seductive ones probably. But, but basically, I, I mean, the, it does seem to be a message of hope, like ultimate hope. That's interesting too, just because something, uh, a claim that Dante has made constantly throughout the Divine Comedy, but especially in the sphere of Mars, is that the justice of the world is bent and bitter. And that the world, the world has inverted justice, and so the world is essentially hell in an unjust place. And it's so interesting that in the darkest possible place, uh, in a graveyard, where somebody you admired is now dead, right next to you, the underlying substructure of reality is golden and beautiful and divine and unified. And that even this struggle within it is part of, you know, the, the fabric of reality or the potential within it, which is already allowed for by, you know, the, the structure of reality or God, the father or Dumbledore or something like that. That's very interesting that there's like, that you see sort of like a secondary world within the secondary world or an underlying, a substructure, or a, an inkling into the substructure of the secondary world, which perhaps, uh, I don't know mm -hmm. if either of you would claim is actually the substructure of our world as well. Is that our connection to the text? Well, I, I, I would say that the secondary world is, is a substructure in the primary world and any good secondary world is a reflection of its primary world. Um, and maybe insofar as that's the case, um, they're all sort of mirror image of, images of one another. Um, but no, listen, I think, I think what, Alex, what you said a few minutes ago about like, um, about willpower and that you echoed Wes, that like, um, faced with the same choice, faced with the same wand, with the same, not the same wand, but the same coarse substance, um, you know, two individuals went in radically different directions. And I think that's sort of what, like, the, the, that golden beam that connects them, I think, identifies that, like, there, there is, as much as we want to say that Harry is this good hero and, dumb, and, and Voldemort is this, you know, arch villain, there is a, like a, a core substance between the two of them, between their two wands and between their two beings that, um, you know, that is basic, right? That is, that is um, foundational. And that the things that come from that, the goodness or the evil or somewhere in between, those are a reflection of how you, how you use what you have, like how you, how you apply that willpower or that knowledge or that language or whatever it is that we're going to call these, like call, call our, our actions derived from it, some combination of those things. But um, like that, 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 that's their core. And it just so happens that their core is, is this bird that represents life and death and um, that, that literally represents mortality and immortality at the same time, which I think is, is fascinatingly paradoxical and 
I love paradoxes. I'm always mesmerized by them. I don't ever know really what to say about them, but I just think that they are, they are core, they are essential. Um, like to me, the Phoenix is the, the, as, as ineffable as I find it to explain what it represents beyond say life and death. Like, why does it have to represent that? Um, you know, our, our world is one of paradoxes and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm always left with, uh, without sufficient words to explain that. But I think that that's sort of what you see. I mean, I, I, when I read this for the first time, I guess I was what, maybe 14 or 15. I was so interested in like the dome that is created. Um, maybe I saw a picture of it somewhere. And I remember watching the movie and being so disappointed in the way this was um, designed in, in film, because I was really into like imagining this, this dome with all of these rays and colors and, and like beams of light and I, and, you know, little particles and stuff like that. But I think that, I think that it has something to do with like these two people are people and like, what's at their core, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I, totally, one. I totally agree. And it's interesting. I was watching a lecture on calculus last night and this calculus teacher as as passionate as he was, was sort of inarticulate in being a, uh, at being, he was not able to articulate why he was so passionate about his subject, which I think is likely a, a condition that afflicts many in the mathematics and, and the mathematics and science field. So surely not all, but he he was trying to explain what was interesting about being able to take the tangent of a curve, and what he was in, unable to express about that, besides saying it was cool, is that it's you take a constant measurement of an inconstant thing you see something constant passing through that which is inconstant. And so that's, that's what we're seeing now too, I think, that we're seeing immortal roles embodied by new individuals over and over. And I think that's part of what the Phoenix image and also the Dionysus image and also the Easter image is, is that the roles are eternal, but the participants are not. And that, what I think is so interesting about Voldemort coming back to be Voldemort coming back to be in a hero fighting him. And we see this in Grindelwald too, that there was another evil man before him. And we see that expansion in Tolkien too, that there's not Sauron, there's another bigger principle than he is. But that, um, what, what is unique about a person is not the role that they play, but how they play the particular role. Again, I guess you could even reduce it to that cliche that it is not your specific role, but how you play it. But what makes this a little more advanced than that is that just like with Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes, like I think you said, Sarah, like you illustrated, they're very similar. They're very smart, sharp individuals who spent their whole life devoted to crime in one way or another. And so Harry and Voldemort, and I think this is also the theme in many, many movies and stories, are abilities-wise very similar. Parcel tongues, and they're both orphans, and they have this phoenix feather. But what truly differentiates them, what makes it so that they can say like the hero at the end of a movie, I'm nothing like you, to the villain, is the side that they fall upon, that they choose to be upon. Voldemort is a world away from Harry or literally on a different side of the same coin because, or figuratively, <laughs> because it is a figure in our imagination, um, because of his choice to be evil. Whereas Harry is on the side of good because he chooses to be on good. And they are not similar because of their abilities, but rather utterly dissimilar because of the side they find themselves on which I think is the basic flaw in Voldemort's and Slytherin's argument for like pure bloods. They seem to think that the most important thing about a person is their abilities and that they have the best abilities. But what the people on the side of good realize is that you need a differentiation of labor. You need Neville just as much as you need Harry for their differing skill sets, um, but they're all working towards the same common cause, which is to produce you know, something good in the world. Uh, which is a better or stronger or more motivating cause than the evil desire, which is what? To just destroy that which is good. And then they have to build their own thing using principles of good or just die out. I, I'm not sure, you know, evil, and I know I'm tangenting here, 
evil, just like the Joker evil in the Dark Knight, doesn't seem to have a plan for after it wins. It seems like it would just yeah. have to revert to good to build something new. Or, uh, you know, I guess we can imagine subjugated horror, but even then you would need principles of order and infrastructure. I, I think the, the interesting place to, to kind of go from there might be to look at uh, Barty Crouch and the way in which he, you know, he's, he's playing a role through the entire book and he plays it to a T. Um, and, and part of that is through the support of the uh, house elf, you know, um, not telling the truth the entire time, even though, um, you know, she, she's like, she's being loyal. Like she's upholding what to her is, is the highest good, right? To um, maintain the secrets of her master, um, which is a good, it, it's a kind of good, but it's, it's so distorted. And the way that, you know, Barty Crouch plays this role is so good. He's like the best moody, but it's in service of this, ultimately deranged um, kind of notion that he's going to be Voldemort's um, number one, you know, like a son to him, you know, closer than a son. Uh, so it's, it's like trying to find, I think it's a little bit like a Wormtail's hand that he gets too. you know, it's like this thing that's, that's trying to, trying to make up for something that, that was, that was cut off, um, that was, that was good in itself, but was sort of like rejected. And, and so that, they're they're playing out something which seems good in itself but but is ultimately just uh just impossible to to work right and, and you see that i think you see the reverse of that too with dumbledore we finally see dumbledore in action and he's terrifying right like he looks scary yeah. but he is good it, it's it's very interesting reversal oh that's a nice uh, allusion to uh um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where um, Aslan is uh, described by multiple characters as he's not safe. He's not like he's he's not a safe figure, but he is good, um, and that he has like enormous capacity to do damage. <laughs> um, but yeah, that line where where Dumbledore um, burst into the into the room and Harry for the first time understood why Voldemort, why, why this was the wizard um, that, uh, that Voldemort feared before all else. Um, I loved that line. Um, yeah, and just back to the point really quickly of um, the rejection of the father by Barty Crouch or the rejection by the father as leading him to seek a substitute or defective father like Voldemort who he misplaced yeah. trust or lust or love and that just strikes me as the same as the idea behind the shredder in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles who takes pe young kids in the sewer and like gives them video games like Pleasure Island from Pinocchio and then turns them to evil it recalls me also the devil in Milton's Paradise Lost who feels rejected by the father by the production of the son, and then of course Voldemort him, himself, who is an orphan but also kills his own father. Which, though it is um, it is a fratricide that Cain does, it seems like what each of these these figures seems to do is, like you said, Wes, they they cut off a branch and then they try and sort of like glue it back on in a different place. It's I I wonder <laughs> to one extent too. That's sort of uh, part of a problem today in our contemporary society that we, we, we think we might be able to replace that which is family in an easier way than we actually can. That is in fact rejection uh, of that which we might well do better to improve upon that, uh, that leads to the greatest evils of our, you know, in the world. <laughs> well, I mean, the family thing is really complicated. Like we see that whatever was going on in the Crouch family, it, it was it was deeply uh, problematic, right? And I, I don't know quite what to do. And and it kind of comes back to um, Draco again, who's like, you know, next to Neville and maybe Snape, he's like the most interesting character, Draco. So like, what what do you do for someone like that in given this whole kind of framework that we're in? Um, 
you know, do, do you sort of like uh, invite him up to Dumbledore's office to look in the pensive and, you know, listen to the Phoenix sing for a bit? Or does he just kind of have <laughs> to drink his potion down to the dregs and like sort of see it through? And that's the only way that he's going to get there. What do you mean, what do we do for a kid, a person like Draco? Do you mean like, do we have to let them come around to their their worldview being um, or in need of alteration? Or do you like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not clear what your question is just yet. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of saying it. I mean, just like we see how complex problems are going off of the family idea, right? Like that's that's a kind of essential problem which pre-exists any individual and you're born into it and you've got to kind of manage with it um if you get going the wrong direction it seems really difficult to to clear up the confusion and set you back on on track right and so in these cases like Voldemort is just digging himself deeper and and Crouch likewise um and so I, I sort of wonder about about old Draco there um if if there is something that could be done for him, or if it's sort of already just a matter of letting him see where this, this path is taking him. I think it's neither. And I think that what comes through, especially in the in the next book as well, is because we'll see examples of people diverging from their families, right? We'll see Percy do this. We'll see how Sirius has done this. We'll see how Harry is accused of doing this in a negative way. I think what we'll see more and more is that it's not what someone else can do for you. You are the effect of your choices, regardless of your family. I think we'll see that with Neville. I think we see that with Harry. I think we see that with Ron differentiating himself from all his family members. That yes, we see that lots of people have had hard lives. Neville, for sure. Uh, Draco, he's getting it from all sides. You know, Hermione, Muggle, Harry too but that it, it's ultimately one's choices, not one's situation that dictates who one is and how one is the same as or different from one's family. And I think that's what we really see in this series because not even Draco is the same as Lucius, as similar as they are with their similar chins and hair. So I do think to your question, Wes, I, I think there's a, and it's funny, like the, the the real world analog of this is like we have students, right, who are heavily affected by their parents. Sometimes that's really good. And sometimes it's like, well, I know where you learn this behavior because I've seen your parents behave this way. And there's like a degree to which I can't do anything about this. Um, and, uh, you know, there are certain behaviors that are learned. And there are certain things that are, that are um, you know, they're learned at home or they're learned elsewhere. I think if we are the sum of our choices, I think the only thing that we can do for other people is provide them opportunities to make new choices, right? So like, That's um, like practicing, and, and we do, we see Harry do this much to his, his you know, he thinks it's wrong or Ron thinks it's weak. Um, and, and I think we see, like, there's a part of us that wants a punishment for a series of bad choices that Draco makes. You know, that kid deserves some punishment, right? But, and, and when he gets turned into a ferret, it's kind of funny. And he kind of deserves it, right? But, um, but if, if we really do believe that we are the sum of our choices, then um, we're also more than the worst choice we've ever made. Because we're still alive and there's the opportunity to make another choice the next day. Now there might be, there may be some things that we could choose to do that are unforgivable. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm super interested in, in like the fact that somebody like Barty Crouch uses the Imperial curse on his own son. Right. And um, this is a, a dark wizard hunter who resorts to things that are considered unforgivable curses out of fear out of shame, out of a, a series of, of poor reasons, right? Um, and I, I, you know, I, there is a degree to which in like civil society or in like a so-called just society, there have to be 
punishments for bad behaviors, right? But, um, and those, those punishments have like social benefits, not the least of which is keeping people safe. But um, like the kind, like extreme punishments that deny people the opportunity to make better choices the next time to say learn or grow or, uh, I, I think that that's a really important part of this that like, um, uh, you know, what we'll see later and I think principally in the, in the seventh book, but also in the sixth book, you know, Dumbledore models this, I think pretty nicely for someone like Snape, um, and for someone like Draco that like you can you can write people off but every time you do that um you reduce the possibility uh that they that 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 they could be say quote unquote saved um or returned or rehabilitated or reconciled in some way and it's almost self-fulfilling right the way that Barty Crouch wrote off of this wrote off his son, like literally said, you're no son of mine, right? And, um, and look at the consequences of that, right? But this, um, now, I'm super interested in like, do you think that his son was lying when he was screaming in court saying I didn't do it? Um, and based on the way that he speaks about Voldemort as this like surrogate father, this, this, you know, sick master, um, but that's besides the point. I think for someone like Draco, keep showing up and giving chances. I mean, not not irrationally or naively, but um, but I think that that's a part of it. Because but but you can't force their hand either, right? Like I thought it was interesting at the end when when everybody was toasting Cedric and toasting Harry. Um, Harry looks over at at Draco's table and he sees all of the Slytherins you know, a lot of them didn't stand up and toast him, right? Um, and that they were whispering when Dumbledore was giving this really beautiful eulogy. And that's sort of like what I do in an assembly, right? I look at like the bad kids who are um, like not behaving and you focus on the bad and I get angry and I get emotional. And um, But Dumbledore wasn't looking at them. Um, there's like the narrator says that, you know, he just didn't see Maybe he did see, but he just, or he didn't care to look. There were some kids who kind of like weren't on board yet. Um, but it, it doesn't seem to flap him um, or make him mad. Like a lesser teacher like myself would have said, you assholes over there, like get your goblin in the air and you're going to toast this guy whether you like it or not. Right. And like, that doesn't work. Well, he <laughs> and seems I learned to respect that the freedom of the will. He seems to respect yes, that's exactly freedom of the right. Make- and I think the place of Slytherins, he understands them. Um, but you're making me also think about the Christian concepts of grace and redemption through what you're saying, Sarah. You've helped me understand what they mean. Because it seems like what grace is, is understanding that somebody has the ability to bring more good in the world through their choices in the future, regardless of the bad that they've done in the past, barring something truly unforgivable. But it seems as if for humans, there's nothing unforgivable, at least in the Christian idea, because of the fact that they consciously put their own God to death and he forgave them for it, indicating that all sins mm-hmm. would be forgiven, uh, could be forgiven by grace. And I think that's what that means. And that what redemption is, is sort of what we see Cain having to deal with after killing his brother, that you better use that grace and do some good things after you've uh, made mistakes. And if you're, you have the sort of moral sense of Augustine and you look back on your own life and you look how much grace you've been given because of all the terrible things you've done, like bite other humans when you were young, like an animal. Um, and, <laughs> and that, uh, I think that's a very sophisticated way of looking at life, uh, that you, you are never on auto drive so long as you have freedom of will, which you always do so long as you are human and that you can always well, and be it's, things. Yes. It's a, it's a very, it's, I mean, I, I think maybe as a, as you know, having been steeped in the traditions of the church and the theology of the church, it's hard for me not to read it into this, but that, um, uh, you know, God, in, in the theological sense, like God doesn't create obedient, like obedient um, humans who have no will. Um, if God wanted to, God could have done that um, such that, 
such that Those we would never sin. And, right? Yeah, it's such that we would never sin, and therefore we would never need redemption. There would never have been a need for the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. None of that would have been necessary if we didn't have choice. Um, but something, there's something that, that I, that like, I think the, the um, logical leap is there's something better about chosen devotion or chosen love. Um, and, and it must be better because that's what God granted. Um, and, 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 and an all loving, all powerful, all knowing God would choose the better. Right. I think it's, well, and that's the only uh, way parity can, so if the act of creation is a charitable act, that's the only way the act can be mirrored by another being willfully. Right. And so, so I, the only I, way, yeah. I do think, I was just gonna say, I do think it's about preserving their will, right? Like you, you can't browbeat somebody into being good. Just like apparently you can't browbeat somebody into being bad. Um, like the, I think that that's, that's important. I mean, I, I think that imperial curse is maybe the worst one of them all. Um, I mean, I know the killing and the torturing is bad, but I think that that's probably where the fear came from. Um, that like, you don't know if your neighbor is under the imperial curse and is like passing. I mean, it just, I can see that one causing mass societal panic, fear, just that maybe is the, is the one thing that it sounds like it was used um, pretty often. And then again, it was used as like a excuse, like, oh, I didn't mean to, I was under the imperial curse after he'd you know, he fell from grace, like the, the, that, or fell from power, like that, that curse, that, that one of the three, though it's presented as the first one, and it, though it, it features the least physical pain, and maybe the fewest, like, long-term consequences, because you're not, you know, dead after it, but it does seem like that one is, like, the worst to your uh, nature, and that, like, it is the thing that, that maybe allowed for somebody to rise beyond like their beyond their human capacity. Like that in concert with his powers made him larger than life. Because it because instead of him being larger than life, it was people being distanced from one another. Like fearful of their neighbor and what their neighbor is up to and who their neighbor obeys that like I I don't know. I, I think there's something in that. Um, yeah, what you're saying you. just reminds me so much of claims about Germany in the 30s, but even more so about the Soviet Union, that, uh, the, you know, imperious in Latin, just like in English, you know, it comes from the word that was ascribed to Caesar. He was, you know, he was the imperator, uh, where we get the word emperor from, and empire is, or to be an emperor is to be a ruler over many nations and so to have one's will forced in line and one who is imperious is one that forces like you were saying the students to stand up even if they don't want to and so this makes me want to ask you a question Wes which is this do you think that and something about the imperious curse which is interesting is that it feels so pleasant it feels so good that the imperious curse could have a correlate in the primary world of say a destructive ideology that one implants in one's mind rather than thinking consciously and in a, or think, being aware and thinking one's own thoughts uh, for oneself and thus trying to obviate one's responsibility for the situation one finds oneself in. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the connection there between the imperious curse and the idea of an empire would tend to make that um, connection, right? Like if you sort of have this notion that you, you've, you've got control um, simply because, because you've figured out um, some stuff about like ruling um, and, and government and stuff like that, and you've got a big army, then, then yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, it does seem like the tendency for empire to want to kind of worm its way inward is is also embedded in the history of Christianity, though. Like, there has been 
a kind of fusion of those two things of worldly empire and and the kind of spiritual uh, world as well. Like that that uh, is a big big problem that I think is still being worked out as a result. Um, and so I think there's there's a just a lot of complicated elements to that to like sort of try to understand what is going on in somebody else's head in the first place. It's hard to understand what's going on in your own head. So it's a good question. Well, all the more important to be honest then, because that's the only way we're going to make out what each of us is all about. Um, because none of us can tell by ourselves. <laughs> so I guess we better keep doing this. Um, and we better keep uh, uniting together. And so I guess uh, I have a question just because we, this has been a great conversation and we, we've gone long. And I know, Sarah, you, you're in the middle of the country, so it's a lot later for you than it is for us. How many chapters would y'all like to read of our next book? And um, not to pass over the fact that we've just now finished this book and accomplished uh, passing the midpoint of this series. Um, but I would like to read lots of chapters. Just now that I'm listening to Audible, I can fly through books and I'm loving it. I mean, maybe the first, uh, I, I don't have the book in front of me, but um, uh, maybe through like the first five chapters or so, five, at least get Harry to the um, 12 Grimald place, maybe. Um, Works what, for me. What's, yeah, what's the fifth chapter there, Alex? Do you have it in front of you? I don't have it yet. I don't have it in front of me. I do have it on Audible, and I'm I'm a little farther than that so far, just because it's so easy to listen. But um, oh, uh, okay. Wes, do you have it in front of you? I just pulled it off the shelf here. It looks like the first six chapters would make a pretty good first group. Perfect. Like, yeah, read through the end of chapter six. Sure. All right. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, uh, I don't have a special question for us today. I'll, we, I think we can return to that next time. I think we just had a, a what was special today was just the conversation itself. And um, I thought yeah. this was great. And I appreciate you making the time from the middle of the country, Sarah. No worries. It's the yeah. beginning. That's right. It's the beginning. That's a good way of looking at it. And, you know, it's amazing. With so much ground behind us, I guess it is a new beginning every time. And so never to be taken for mm -hmm. granted. Each time a unique conversation. And I, I think that's something if I could talk to my St. John self, I, I would say to do better at. Don't take any of the mm. moments for granted. And you know, maybe I'll apply that to right now too. It's like, I love doing this with y'all. This has been great. I like facing the darkness with y'all. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. All right. Well, a good one. All right. Keep your heads down, everybody. <laughs> Take it easy.